You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right. Again, Matthew 22, 23 to 33, and it says, The same day Sadducees came to him, who says that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them, after them all the women died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You were wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father God, there is just so much to be thankful for here at a church like Free City. Your word is active. Your word is moving. There is living, breathing life here in Free City. And that's just an amazing praise that we have to offer to you. Um, I just thank you for each and every one in this room, those who serve, those who come and are actively reading of your word and teaching your word. Um, it's just an amazing, amazing, powerful gift that you've given us by your Holy Spirit. Um, I just ask that as you work in us today through Matthew 22, you let this word be active and living in our lives and maybe some way strikes us in a way that we never thought before. Um, I also just want to pray for Central. I just want to pray that your Holy Spirit is in these walls and is moving and active, especially among the youth. Um, you're such a powerful God, and you can do so many wonderful things, and you have all of us in the palm of your hand, Jesus, and I just want to thank you for that. Again, I just want to lift up Casey to you today. I want your word to move through him and so that it can ultimately you know, show us something new that has not been yet brought to light. And Father, I just pray again, thank you for today, and thank you for these people in this room. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, yeah, if you have a Bible, open it up. And if you have a black Bible, um, when Evan paused after saying on page 777, seven, you should have laughed. That was funny. Um, and it kind of makes me nervous. Like, you're not going to laugh at anything I say. Um, so let's, let's just get started. Hey, so in Matthew 22, I want us to look around and, and kind of see the, the big picture of, of what's going on. And so if you look at the beginning of Matthew 22, you're going to see all of a sudden all different kinds of people and their names are, are coming to ask Jesus questions. And, and so you see like the Pharisees step up and, and they say, hey, we've got some questions for you, Jesus. And then in that very next verse, after they step in verse 15, verse 16, it says they weren't alone, that the Herodians were with him. And then we see, starting where we started reading this morning in verse 22, 23, uh, that the Sadducees step up and say, now we have a question for you. And then if you see the next chapter, look at uh, chapter 23, all of a sudden in chapter 3, Jesus gets like WWE and he starts condemning all kinds of things. He starts saying, woe is to you, and we see words like hypocrites, blind leaders, blind guides. And so he goes through to say, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, which means judgment is coming, sorrow is on if there's not repentance. It's a warning and a judgment statement. And so we want to see that people are coming to Jesus, and the question is, are they coming authentically, or are they coming with different loyalties, different desires, different wants, and they're trying to shape Jesus around their beliefs of their life, of what they want, but they're coming to Jesus, and they have these questions, and some of these questions feel unanswerable. 
you know, like they're prepared for this. Like, what are you going to do? I, um, this was a little while ago, but we were having some difficulty. A diff- we were having a hard time communicating with our insurance company. Uh, we were speaking things that we thought were really clear and obvious, and they were ignoring us with other things that I couldn't understand. And so I made notes, and I had all my evidence ready, and every question I was going to start off with when they asked me was with, oh, really? That's how I was going to start every question. And so, man, I thought I was ready. I thought I had unanswerable questions. And I just remember sometimes when I answered them, like, oh, what are you going to do with that one? Like, drop the phone, but it's a cell phone. You don't want to drop it. It might break. Um, Kind of that moment, they had answers, and it was awful. (laughs) But we see these questions coming to Jesus, and they're coming because they want to know what Jesus is like. They've heard things about Jesus. They've seen Jesus do things. They've heard his teachings, and everyone is looking at Jesus like, I don't know if you fit in with my team. I don't know if you fit in with what I believe about the world and with what I want in this world. I don't know if you're for me and my agenda. And so Matthew's been asking this question over and over, like, what is Jesus like? And we see here in Matthew 22 that people are coming to Jesus with specific questions, and we see that their underlining motive is exposed. They're coming to test Jesus with these specific questions. Like, they already have a decided answer to expose Jesus. And so they're coming to find out if Jesus is their friend or their enemy. Like They're coming because they have uncertainty about Jesus. They're coming to say, are you for us or are you for them? Who do you stand with? What team are you going to get on? And so they're coming to say, are you my friend or are you my enemy? I want to know what Jesus is like. And in Matthew 22, we see that Jesus doesn't fit anybody's agenda. And it's a warning. Like, it's a warning of the tendency of our heart to squelch the scriptures and deny the power of God. Like, this is teaching us a reality about the afterlife, but there's also like an eternal peace about you. And so, Jesus is very, very clear. There is something inside of you that is eternal that does not end when you take your last breath. And there's a trajectory of your life, and everything about the trajectory of your life depends on what you do with Jesus. Like, he doesn't pull any punches about that. He is very, very clear. But there's something underneath the text that Jesus is confronting our competing loyalties, our competing desires, our competing beliefs that want to shape what he says into something that we want as we try to shape Jesus into a God that we want, which is no God at all. And so when we look at this, I want us to see how, first, insulting Jesus is. They ask a question, and he just says, you're wrong, which is kind of like, you're an idiot, you know? I mean, he's pretty insulting. But I also want to see how exposing he is to everyone. And so this is what we're going to look at, three things. We're first going to look at team, wants, and then beliefs. And so first, team, Jesus exposes where our true loyalties are. And then once, Jesus exposes our true desires and wants. And then beliefs, Jesus exposes our true beliefs that we're trying to shape what he says around. And so let's look at this. First, we see teams. Jesus exposes true loyalties that we already hold, that we already have. And so let's look at all these groups that are questioning Jesus. And so look at verse 15. Back up a little bit. In verse 15, it says, The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And so this is a continuation of what's happened. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem. All the masses are quoting the psalm saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. He arrives at the temple. He doesn't like what he sees there. He starts throwing out money changers and vendors, and he pushes them out. And the, the, the leaders come to him and say, By what authority do you do this? And so we see that this conversation is extended two days. You know, it happened then, but then it it keeps happening. And so he's standing in the courtyard, and the Pharisees come around him, and they're looking at Jesus, and they're saying, we're not for sure if you're for us or if you're against us. So they come to entangle him in their words. But but then look look at verse 16, one verse down. They weren't alone. They they came with the Herodians. Now, we're going to explain who they are. They are not friends with the Pharisees. Like, there's nothing. Like, they don't have dinner parties together. They don't, like, you know, chat one another. I mean, they're not friends. 
But they come together and they ask Jesus, you know, who are you for? Where do you stand? And then we see this other party in verse 22. The Sadducees come. I'm sorry, verse 23. The Sadducees come to question Jesus. So who are the Pharisees? Who are the Herodians? And who are the Sadducees who are arguing with Jesus in the courtyard of the temple? And so first, let's look at the Pharisees. Now, I need to stop here for a second, because uh, this week Gary told me that I painted the Pharisees in too good of a light last week, um, that I was too nice to them. And so just to get it on the record, hey, they were real dirt bags. And so write that down. Um, they were real spiritual dirt bags. But what I was trying to paint was like they held a lot of the biblical morals, Like when it came to how they thought about society, they were family first. Like they wanted to see a God-honoring society. Like they wanted people to live out of like accept the norms that they found in the Old Testament, the morality that the Bible talks about. Like they were those kind of people. You know, they would give, but Jesus said they gave so people would see how much they gave to see, man, look how much they give. They, they, they would pray. They believed in prayer, but Jesus said they prayed out loud so people would look at them and say, man, they are good prayers. He would say they are like cleaned up, cleaned up cups, you know, shiny on the outside, but full of, and he specifies greed and self-indulgence on the inside. Or he would say they're like, you know, tombs painted and beautiful on the outside, but inside full of death and decay. And so it wasn't a problem with their proposed morality or maybe even the direction they wanted to see society. The problem was they spoke one thing, but they hid sin on the inside. And they opposed Jesus. Like like they opposed Jesus. They did lots of churchy things. Uh, I introduced my kids to Nacho Libre as a while ago, and uh, man, the phrase where Jack Black is like, hey, I've been out doing lots of churchy things, man, they loved it, and so for weeks and weeks, they're like, hey, how was work? I was like, I was just doing a lot of churchy things, and, and uh, but they did a lot of churchy things, but there was something off on the inside of them, and Jesus saw through them, and he exposed hypocrisy. He exposed their hypocrisy. And so real fast, like jump to uh, chapter 23, just look at this. We see the woe statements. And the woe statements are W-O-E, woe. Like woe, meaning it is grief and condemnation. It is rebuking and judgment at the same time. Like when you say woe to someone, you are making a judgment statement about their life and the direction of their life. And it's also a warning. Repent, change, or sorrow will come. Both judgment and warning. And so we see in verse 16, woe to you blind guides. And then he says, you're greedy. And, and then we see, look at verse 23. It says in, in chapter 23, it says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees. And they accuse him, you're hypocritical. And then he says it again and again in verse 25, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And then verse 27, woe to you. Verse 29, woe to you. He says, warning and judgment. It's not just what you do. It's what's on the inside. It's what you hide. And so he's warning them. But we, we see a lot more, you know, and, and spelling matters. I am... Uh, uh, Paul Riley texted me this a while ago, and he was asking me about something, and I meant to do woe, W-H-O-A, like slow down, but I spelled W-O-E. I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he's like, man, you're really against this. And I was like, what is he talking about? Spelling's hard. So it matters. It matters. Spelling matters. They were conservatives in their professed beliefs. They knew the Old Testament. They preached the Old Testament. They were pro-family. They wanted a religious nation, a religious community. They pointed to the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, as authoritative and trustworthy. You know, if we were going to compare the Pharisees to anyone in society, there was a very conservative nature about them. And that's not saying, you know, if you're conservative in your beliefs, you're a Pharisee. But it is saying that a lot of things that they desired would have fit that direction. And so there's something that pulls on us, even when we have maybe some right courses, there's something that pulls inside of us. But look at this. The Pharisees are coming to Jesus because they look at him and they say, man, you look kind of liberal to us. 
There was something about Jesus that made them question, are you really on our agenda or not? And so they came to Jesus and said, man, there's something kind of liberal about you. And I don't know if we can trust it or not. And so when they looked at Jesus, there was something that pulled away. They would have said, man, all this tax collector and prostitutes get in uh, the, the kingdom of heaven first. Like that language just doesn't cut it for us. And so really fast, look back in 22, look at verse 16 through 22. They come with a really specific question about money and taxes. And so Jesus, we're not really going to unpack that because I want to jump to what the Sadducees are doing, but Jesus looks at them and exposes them. You know, they basically say, you know, they, they don't come alone. They come with the Herodians who are on the opposite side of this. And they say, where do you stand on taxes to the Roman government whom we hate? Where do you stand on it? And so Jesus, if he would have said, hey, pay the taxes, a lot of the people would have been like, oh man, I don't know, that's not what we signed up for. Or if he would have said, don't pay the taxes, the ruling authorities would have said, man, it's time to kill him. And that's actually why they did kill him. Jesus, king of the Jews, insurrection. But he comes and he exposes them. He says, Who, which of you has a coin? And they hand him a coin. So they had it. He says, what inscription, what graven image is on this? That's the exact language. And so you know, this conservative group who had said, we'll have no graven image before us because we believe in the Ten Commandments. They would use the graven image when it benefited them, but when it cost them, they had issue with it. We'll use it when it benefits us, but when it starts to cost us, we stand against it. We're in danger when we use the scriptures as authoritative when it benefits it, but when it starts to cost us or condemn us, we kind of just whitewash it away. Well, everyone knows that's not really what it means. And so he exposes their hypocrisy. And he also gives a trajectory. You know, when he says in verse 21, when he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, he's basically saying, hey, the things in this world that owe due and respect because you benefit from them, there is obligation to it. But the things that are spiritual, the things that are given to God, you're created in the image of God. Devote yourself first to him. And so he tells us there's a dual relationship that we have that we benefit from society. And then we see this in like a Romans 13 and a 1 Peter 2, that there's a certain disposition that Christians have toward authority and sort of so, uh, toward um, society and authority that we're supposed to kind of reflect the narrative that we find in the scriptures. And is there times where the Bible might cut across and say, hey, the government is going against the decrees of God? Certainly. But sometimes those decrees are just going against our preference of what we want. And Jesus said this in a very, I mean, Rome was not kind. And so we first kind of see this, but they didn't come alone. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says they came with the Herodians. And so the first thing is Pharisees hated Herodians. They were political enemies. The Pharisees didn't want Roman rule. Herodians benefited and depended on Roman rule. The Pharisees didn't want to pay taxes. Herodians accepted taxes as a payment to secure their positions. Pharisees and Herodians were not friends, but they both looked at Jesus with suspicion and they either united to trap him or they united to say, are you for us or are you for them? Because when the Herodians looked at Jesus, they said, I don't think he's on our side. And that comes even a little bit louder when we look at who the Sadducees are. But the first thing that I just want you to see, the Pharisees looked at Jesus and they said, man, there is something about him. I don't know if he's on our team or not. Now look at the Sadducees. Who, who were the Sadducees? And so the Sadducees, they didn't believe in a resurrection, so they were sad, you see. Um, but there's a whole lot more to them. They're more of a political party or a ruling class than anything else. They held the office of the high priest because they descended. They were descendants from the three sons of Levi. They held a majority power in the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel. They made up the leading families of the Israel nation. They were the influencers holding the majority of power and wealth. They would have made up the majority of prominence, merchants, and aristocrats. They were landowners. They had a religion. They had a religion like everyone has a religion because they had spiritual beliefs. Even rejecting spiritual beliefs is a spiritual belief. 
Even looking and saying, like, I don't really live by doctrine or dogma. I don't need it. Is doctrine and dogma. And so they were spiritual in a sense, but they believed really differently than the Pharisees. They, they only believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, written and recorded by Moses. They didn't believe in the afterlife. I mean, it tells us plainly here, like, that means there's no rewards or punishments for how you live. There's no heaven or hell. And so this life is all that you have. And so get all that you can. They didn't believe in angel or demons. And so they didn't believe in spiritual forces that were at work in the world. It was what you see is what you get. Use wisdom and knowledge in all matters. Good luck, bad luck, sure. But money, power, connections, man, it can help with good luck and bad luck. They didn't believe in a God who interacted with them. They were moralistic deists. God was real, but in this life, that's all that there is. He doesn't get involved. Maybe he doesn't really even care. They believed in free will, your choice, do what benefits you. They believed that people were responsible for their property, their prosperity, or their misfortune. They were, in the Israel nation, the educated, the rich, the prominent, holding a view that God is distant, who doesn't get involved, and that there was nothing to come after you die, so nothing to regulate what you do in this world. You know, in, in many ways, the Sadducees were more like modern liberals. Now, I already cleared this with Gary and Lowell, so we're on good grounds. But in many ways, they were looking at Jesus and they were saying, there's something about Jesus that is way too fundamental, like all this heaven and hell stuff, like live your life a certain way with judgment to come. There was something about Jesus that made them very uncomfortable. And so the Sadducees rejected Jesus because he was too conservative. Judgment for sin, that's so archaic. The Pharisees rejected Jesus because he was too liberal for them. Look who he hangs out with. Anyone who can repent can get in, even bad people, tax collectors and prostitutes. Everyone is looking at Jesus and saying, there's something about you that I don't like. Now, we're on dangerous ground right now. Because right now you're thinking, or some of you might be thinking, well, I'm moderate, so I'm great. Jesus isn't saying be moderate. Jesus is saying, I've brought a kingdom and for my kingdom to be established, every other kingdom has to give way. And every other kingdom will give way either in judgment, fighting against, or in surrender to submit to my kingdom. And so he's setting up something altogether different. And so in some ways, it is so much more fundamental than, than what the Pharisees had because there is right and there is wrong. And if you don't live a perfect existence, like he equates, like the seeds of murder start in hate, and it is judgmental. Like it is the grounds for the judgment of God. And so he equates all of this and says, man, there is no way to please God except this, what's going to be unpacked, the death of God. There's only one way forward. But in some ways, like, like he's really more, more progressive than, than anything that they would have seen because anyone can find their way to the foot of the cross. Anyone can get in if they just look. The stories that he's been telling about the two brothers, you know, the one that changes his mind gets in. And so there's something about what he's preaching that everyone looks at and everyone had a problem with what he was saying. And so he had a problem with the Pharisees. He had a problem with the Herodians. He had a problem with the Sadducees. Jesus didn't come to join your team or my team. Jesus came to invite us onto his team. Now, like, think, think about this. When I think about this, I think about Joshua. Okay, so Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. If you grew up singing that song, now you know. Joshua, you know, came after Moses. And so coming into the promised land, like you have all this stuff that is establishing Joshua as the leader. And so Joshua comes in, he comes into the promised land, and he is scared to death of what's before him. So he gets away to pray. And as he's praying, an angel of the Lord stands before him. And he looks at the angel and he says, who are you? Are you for us or are you for our enemy? And if there was anyone that the Bible really came out to say, like, this is God's man, like, Joshua was going to take the lead in a lot of these things. And the angel laughs at him. He says, I'm not on your team. I'm not on their team. I'm on God's team. 
And so the invitation of the gospel is always, you can join God's team. He hasn't come to join your team. And so the first thing that gets exposed, everyone is looking at Jesus, and he's exposing where their true loyalties are. He hasn't come to join our team. But next, wants. Jesus exposes our truest desires and wants. Look, look at verse 23. And so in verse 23, it says, The same day the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So now they're still standing in the courtyard of the temple, and the Sadducees come up to bring a situation, and it says to bring a trap to try to make him pick a side or stand out so he is clear that he opposes them. And so they bring up leveret marriage. So leveret marriage, you can read a description of it in Deuteronomy 25, but leveret marriage was a social net to care for widows. You know, so if, for a woman to get married, she left her family to join her husband's family. And so if you've been to a wedding, you still see this displayed where, you know, the, the bride walks down and there's a question, you know, who gives this woman to be married to, to so-and-so? And it's like one line, you know, the dad has one line to make and everything kind of hinges on that line where he says like, you know, her family or mother or I or I do. And if he doesn't say that, if he says, I don't, it's like, man, we practice this. I don't know where we go from here. But it's picturing something that's been about wedding, that there is a joining of a new family. But, but in this culture, it would have been like leaving and cleaving, joining this new family, becoming a part of that lineage and inheritance and line. But what happened if that woman left her family, joined this family, and the husband died before they had kids? Like, she was in danger. You know, if they had kids, you know, if you have grandkids, grandkids kind of connect you, you know, because they're, they're cute and they're, you know, emotionally, you love them. And then in this society, legally, because they have rights to the land and the lineage and the inheritance. And so it kept her safe. But if she didn't have kids, she was at danger. She was in danger. And so Leverett Marriage would say, hey, if, if a woman marries a man and they don't have kids so that she's taken care of, then a younger brother or a brother needs to marry her to provide you know, prodigy so there would be children to connect her inside the inheritance, to connect her in the family, to connect her to the land so that she's provided for. And so like this, this culture, marrying a previously married woman was not like real socially accepted. And so like it would really leave a woman like in danger. And so Leverett marriage ensured that a childless widowed woman who had left her family to join another wouldn't be abandoned and she would be established. Now this is the situation. Look at verse 25. So they're saying, this is true, right, Jesus? He says, yes, this is true. Verse 25, he says, now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. Verse 26, so to the second and the third down to the seventh. And so he's building this situation where we're asking, man, what is this woman doing to kill all these men? I mean, it's, it's a question that we want to ask. And like in this culture, like with this going, you would really care about who your brother marries. Like you would have a big say in what this has. And then if he got sick, you might really pray for him. God, you know, Jesus, heal him now. Or you might pray for his death, kill him. You know, I don't know. But like it was a family involved thing. And so now look at verse 27. This hypothetical situation, which is really, really unlikely. A lot of death and mayhem is going on here. It says, After them all the woman died in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And so they, like, they would have been smirking. Like, they would have looked at Jesus and maybe high-fived one another. Like, this is an unanswerable question. Does the egg come first or the chicken come first? Whatever you say, we're going to make fun of you. This is playing would you rather. The goal of would you rather is whatever you decide to do, everyone scoffs and says that's the worst decision. Like, this is the kind of thing that's trying to trap Jesus, saying it is unanswerable, therefore the belief of the afterlife must be wrong, or you're saying Moses is a liar. But look at what Jesus says in verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Like he's not, he's not like unclear. 
He's not like, oh, well, I mean, there's one way to think about that. Jesus looks at them and says, you are wrong. And then he tells them why they're wrong. You're wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. And so Jesus steps right in and says, listen, I'm going to go straight at the heart of what this is. You reject the scriptures. And he doesn't first jump to say, man, you reject everything after the Pentateuch and you should believe it, although he is saying that. But he's saying, even within what you believe, you have divided and read the scriptures in such a way that the things that fit your paradigm, the things that fit your belief, you will grab a hold of. But you're just naturally dismissing the things you don't like and the things that don't fit your paradigm. And so it's a warning. Like they want a Bible that has limitations. Like they want a Bible that only says so much about their lives. They want a Bible that doesn't include, specifically for them, a heaven or a hell. They want a Bible that doesn't tell them that God will judge their actions. They don't want to give an account to God. They can accept parts of it. But the parts that start to interfere with their lives, they reject. And Jesus is saying the scriptures come to not support the beliefs you have, but to create the beliefs that you need. And it's what the scriptures do. Like, it's what the scriptures do. Like, we push a lot, man, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. And, I mean, we talk about the Bible reading plan all the time, read your Bible, because we think you should read your Bible. Like, don't believe me. Like, if there's something about this that you don't like, go to the scriptures and study and look at it. Like, read your Bible. Go to the scriptures and find out what it says. But what the scriptures do is they penetrate and they cut deep. And so Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, it says this. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, joints and of morrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then it says, and no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so the first thing, we have all these groups looking at Jesus and saying, man, they don't really, he didn't really quite fit in with me. And so they start to question him. And Jesus hasn't come to join your team. He's come to expose your loyalties and to ask you to join his team. And then he exposed wants that we have. Like Jesus will expose the underlining desires that you have. The scriptures will expose them. And in that moment, you either have to choose to hang on to them or to lay them down to surrender to Jesus. And so first we see this team aspect. Jesus, who do you stand for? And then we see this like want aspect. Do you want the same things I want? But then we see this deeper thing, this belief aspect. Jesus exposes your true beliefs. And so specifically, he challenges their beliefs about the power and goodness of God and he challenges their belief about the authority of the scriptures. And so, so look at this. Like we see it starting in verse 30. He's basically saying, you know, asking the question, do you trust the power and the goodness of God? And so when we come to this verse, and verse 30 is actually a verse that I, I, I hate. And it's okay because if you're in a city group um, and they read all the questions, the hermeneutic questions that we're supposed to apply to the text every week. And so every week uh, after we eat and then I give odd numbers, you know, odd time numbers of, hey, we're about to start discussion. Because if you say five minutes, people know if you're late. But if you say eight minutes, no one can determine that time. They can't do the math. And so I'll say, hey, eight minutes, we're going to get started. And then we sit down, and then, you know, we pray, we talk a little bit, and then I say, hey, we've got these five questions that we apply to every text. And so the five questions, we say, uh, what does this text say? You know, can we summarize its meaning? What does this text teach us? What does it teach us about God, me, sin, the gospel, the world, etc.? What do I like or not like about this text? Is there anything I don't understand? And if someone asks a question, like, I don't get this, I always crowd surf it. I'm like, what do you all think? And, you know, it's just a safe way for me to try to get some ideas before I try to answer. And so, like, what do you all think? And then finally, like, what would I apply to my life? And so, like, we want to apply number two, or I'm sorry, number three to this. What do I like or not like about verse 30? And so look at, look at verse 29 to 30. So just to back up a little bit, it says, Jesus answered them, you are wrong 
because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And then he says this, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so Jesus clarifies something that they couldn't possibly know because he's been in heaven. He knows what the nature of heaven is like. And he says, marriage is a great thing, but it is an earthly thing. And he says, in heaven, there is not marriage. And I don't like that. Like, I, 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 I just, I, I don't like it. Like, when I think about, man, I've, I've been married uh, 20 years. I know I look really young. So you're like, how is that even possible? I was like 12 when I got married. It was an arranged marriage. Really benefited me a lot. My parents were looking out for me. But like, I think about my life. Like, it's hard for me to think about my life w- w- without Kinsey. Like, it's hard. Like, man, she benefits me in so many ways. Like, she makes me healthy by what I eat. I used to eat things like Taco Bell. Um, yeah, I know. You're like, what, what's wrong with that? Well, as you get older, you'll find out what's wrong with that. <laughs> like, I, I used to eat things like that, but now, like, my, my, like, what I eat, it's just, like, leveled up. Like, I just can't exist on a lower level anymore. My body falls apart. You know, she keeps me healthy by, by moving. Uh, she, she runs a lot, and I bought her a dog because I didn't want to run with her. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but it convicts me I feel lazy and sloppy, and so then I, I go work out and do stuff. Uh, but, like, that benefits me. She makes me, me look tougher. Like, she makes me look tougher. Like, I, I, I have moments where I'm like, man, this is hard. I don't know if I can do it. And I remember back to, like, labor and delivery. I'm like, man, if she can do it, maybe I can do this, you know? I mean, I just think, maybe. Or I have to fight my dog. And so, like, if I'm sitting by Kinsey on the couch... Charlie will sit right here by me, look at me, and just start whining because he wants to sit by her. If she's sitting by him and I move him, he growls at me, like his low-level growl, but he's nothing. I can beat him up. Um, And so, like, it makes me tougher. She makes me more manly. If someone, if we're in a group and someone asks me a sports question, she knows that she needs to answer before I answer, otherwise I'm going to look like an idiot. And so she jumps right in to answer the sports question. When I'm at sporting events, <laughs> it's true. When I'm at sporting events, I listen to what she yells, so I know what to yell. I was at a basketball game, this was a little while ago, and I was yelling, hey, get your hands up, because I had heard that. And she said, you know, people usually only yell that when we're on defense. It's not really an offense thing. <laughs> and, you know, I was like, okay. Score a goal unit, you know? I mean, I don't know. And, and so she, she helps me. Man, we also laugh. I mean, we have like inside jokes. Some of them are about you all, but I mean, we have inside jokes. And when I think about like life without her, it makes me sad. And so when I think about eternity without her, it kind of makes me sad. But it's because I don't know what eternity is going to be like. I haven't experienced it. I don't know what God has promised. I can read what he's promised, but I don't know what it'll be like. And so when I start to get down on that, it's because I trust the goodness of God or the power of God to make these situations great. When you don't trust God in the direction of your life, you are either mistrusting the goodness of God or the power of God to resurrect the ashes of your life to make them something better. And so he confronts them. He says, hey, when you look at this and you set this scenario up, you are doubting both the power of God and the good intentions of God. And so we would look to hints in the scripture that would say it's altogether different. And so the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 he starts to describe a vision that he had in heaven. He's, he's describing, like, man, whether I was actually there, or just a vision, I don't even know. But then he describes of what our heavenly bodies will be like. And he says, our earthly bodies are like seeds, but they perish away to grow like a crop. And just like the seed and the crop are, are somewhat connected, they are so different. And so he explains it like this. He says, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of heaven is is of one kind, and the glory of earthly is of another kind. There is the glory of the sun and the glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, seed, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown is in dishonor. It is raised to glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised to power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised into a spiritual body. 
if there is a natural body, there will also be a spiritual body. And so like when we start to talk about that, we don't know what that'll be like, but it's easy to see dissatisfaction in our earthly bodies and to say, man, one day I won't have that pain anymore. One day I won't have that limitation anymore. It's easier to see that we gain something. And so likewise, when we enter the next life, our relationships gain. They're better, not less. They're raised like a seed is to a crop. They are way more. The relationship we gain with God and the relationship we gain with one another is better. And we may not understand it fully, but this is a moment like when I see Jesus, when I see what they see in the scriptures, can I trust his goodness? Can I trust his power? And so the first thing he says is, you don't understand the power of God. Do you trust the power of God and his goodness? Do you trust it in this life? Like, do you trust the power of God to make hard things better? Do you trust the power of God to blow the best things you can dream up out of this world? Do you trust the power of God to make beauty from ashes? Is Isaiah 61.3 where he says, I will take these ashes and I will turn them into gladness. I will take the mourning and I will put on garments of praise instead. Like, do we trust the promise of God in the in-between when it hasn't come yet, when everything feels broken and undone? Are the promises of God that we can't quite feel yet, do they have authority or weight in my life? Psalms 126.5, it says, those who sow in tears will reap with the shouts of joys. And so the question is about the power of God but it's also about the goodness of God. But then he has one more thing. He says something about the scriptures. You don't know the scriptures. And so the question is, do the scriptures shape your beliefs or are your beliefs shaping the scriptures? Look, look at verse 31. It says, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so Jesus looks to the part of Scripture that they would have accepted, and he says there is evidence of what was already sown about eternal life, a relationship with God that doesn't end. And it's already in probably what they would accept most readily than anything else. Like that phrase, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, it would have been something that they would have rattled off over and over. And they would have thought, although that said a lot in the Old Testament, they probably would have thought of Exodus 3.6. When Moses comes because the crying out of God's people who have been suffering under this cruel rule in Egypt, Moses comes and he meets God, and the first introduction he gets is this, that I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Go tell them that I am. And so it would have been this God is entering in to rescue us from the brokenness that we see to fix our lives, to set us back in a relationship with him. And so then he goes on, he says, he's not saying he's the God of the dead. He's saying there is a present relationship that he has with those. And you've said it all along, but you never saw it. And that teaches us something about the scriptures of not just reading them to learn them one time, but reading them again and again and again. And the spirit of God unfolding things that you didn't see that add new levels that take you in new directions and new places that always fit within the canon of scripture. But we see this, that he goes to a place to say it was already established. And there's so many other places he could have gone. Jesus, accepting all of the Old Testament, he, he could have gone to Psalm 16 or Psalms 49 or Psalm 73. He could have pointed at Job 19, verse 25 through 27, or Ezekiel 37, you know, the dead bones coming back to life, which is a picture, you know, not just of Israel coming back to life, but a picture of the second life. Or he could have gone to Isaiah 26, 19, or he could have gotten really clear with a Daniel 12, 2. That says this, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth die, shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to insert everlasting shame and everlasting contempt. But he used what they accepted to show that they had biased beliefs and they were keeping him from seeing what had always been. What in the Bible? 
are you really prone just to read by? What, what in the Bible, when it comes to it, you just kind of glance over and say, man, everyone knows that probably doesn't mean what we think it means. Like, what, what in the Bible are you like, man, I really want to know what the Greek says because I hope it says something different. What in the Bible convicts your deep level beliefs about God, about sin, about the gospel, about this world? And so the first thing that we see is there's a bias in us where I might be skimming over because I don't want to think or apply what it's saying or where I might be doubting God's goodness and promises in my life. And so what we see is Jesus in his mercy, he looks at them and he selects a verse that they would have accepted and he says, you don't understand it. There's more to it. But Jesus also reminds them that the heart of the promise is a real lasting relationship between God and his people. He's looking at them and saying, man, it just wouldn't make sense that God would do all these things to, you know, free them from this suffering only to let them die and to be no more. The interception of God into our life is an eternal interception that sets a trajectory forever that when it says, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the list would go on and on and on. And it's so humbling that God would put our name in that list. Your name, my name, like with all our failures and all our blunders and the times that we accuse God of awful things, the time that we were, you know, disrespectful to him, that we saw his promises and we denied him, that he loves to stand because he's a saving God. He says, I am the God of Casey. I am the God of, insert your name. I am the God of like, we got to be honest. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like they weren't like, you know, capes flapping in the wind, underwear on the outside of their pants, superheroes. They have a lot of flaws. And our saving God loves to stand with them, say, I am their God. And so he's telling them that it would be foolish for God to undertake the task of protecting his people from the dangers during their lives, but just to let them fall into the bigger danger of death and just go away. And so then we come to verse 33. And when the crowds heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But not everybody. Like we learned that the, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes, and the Herodians, and the Sadducees, political enemies, joined forces to oppose Jesus. That means there is something deeper in us that is in opposition to Jesus than we know, that sin has dug in deeper than we know. And the only way to get to it is the God of the universe has to step inside through the power of the Holy Spirit to surgically remove it little by little. You see, the crowds were astonished, but some people were angered. Some people walked away with an eye roll. Some people started to plot the murder of Jesus. Like other people had different responses. And so the question is, when we come to the scriptures and when we see the gospel in itself, what is our response? Like, what, what is our response? And so it goes on to say in verse 31, you know, have you not read what was said to you by God? You know, looking back at it, have you not read what said to you that I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Is he your God? Or, or we might look at Daniel 12, 2 again. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. He's teaching us that there is a trajectory of eternity, that there is an eternal part of you, and it can't be unmade because God made it, and that he has intercepted this world to provide you an opportunity to call out that you might receive the invitation. And the gospel call has gone out. Or we might read a Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, where it says, just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and then after that comes a judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save, bring home those who are eagerly waiting for him. When you hear the teachings 
of Jesus. When you hear the teachings of the scriptures, does it astonish you? Or does it offend you? And if it offends you, will you hang on to your kingdom? Or will you let go of your kingdom for his kingdom? Let me pray for us. Um, Father, Lord, gosh, we come to some of the last words that you had before your death. And the urgency that you have is not just to insult and hurt and not to scare. The urgency that you have is to offer what is true. And so, Lord, before us, we see on display the true reality of what can bring us back to God. And it was the broken body of you and the spilt blood of you. And we do it every week to remember that. Lord, there is something about you, like you didn't come to join our team to promote our thoughts and our vision. You came to save us and we can walk with you and you might change the, tra uh, tra the trajectory of our lives and you might change those in so many ways. You definitely change the trajectory of our lives when it comes to eternity. But we have to do something with what you say. Lord, astonish us. Lord, draw us in. Don't let the offense of what you say drive us away. Hang on to us by the power of your spirit and dig deeper and pull us in and show us what is true, that you do turn ashes into beauty. You do take tears and you sow them to make joy, that you take dead and you make alive, that you take old and you make new, that you have resurrection power for every element of our lives, for our body, for our emotions, and for our soul. Lord, let us feel that. So Lord, we ask this as we come, whether we go in the back for prayer, we come forward to take communion, or we sit and we think because something's heavy upon us. Wherever we go, Lord, I pray that your spirit would dig down just a little bit deeper. Jesus, we love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, in your name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas, please visit our website at fcclawrence.com.